There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hello and welcome to Ezra Klein Show, my last one here at the Vox Media Podcast Network. My last one here at Vox. Ooh, that is weird to say. I think the first thing here is to say thank you. This organization and the show, they've been the great projects of my life, professionally at least. The, the point of them has been to help make the world a little more clear and a little more humane. But this work is a privilege to do, and it's a privilege I have because of all of you who trust me with your time, who listen to me generously, who gain from the good, who forgive me my mistakes. So thank you. I guess I should say what's happening here. If you missed it in, in January, I'll be starting at the New York Times as a columnist on the opinion page. I'll be doing a reported column on policy and launching an interview podcast there, an evolution of the work I've been doing on this show. I have a lot of plans that I'm excited about for both, and, and I hope you'll follow me. But I hope you'll keep listening to this feed too, as I will. This is very much both and, not either or. I'll be doing my conversations at the Times, and Vox will be building something new and better atop this show's DNA here. You're going to have even more great podcasts to listen to. It should be a win-win. I do want to say a word about leaving Vox. I, I love this place. I've been building it in one way or another for eight years now. I've been thinking about it for even longer than that. I'm so proud and amazed by what it's become by the things it has become that I never could have expected um, and that are not that are not mine. People attach all sorts of stories to founders leaving. And so I, I want to tell mine myself. Founding an organization and trying to uphold what that role requires, both in public and in private for eight years, it's just hard. It's a joy, of course, and it's a gift to get to build something you dreamed about, something you thought needed to exist. That's a really rare opportunity, and I'm grateful for it. But it's a lot to hold, even when it's going well. In some ways, especially when it's going well. Every new project you do, every new topic you cover or platform you expand into is another promise made to an audience that you need to be careful not to break. Another promise made to yourself or to the people you've hired that you need to be careful not to break. And I've tried to take that seriously. Being a founder has been the most rewarding experience in my career, but it is also, without any doubt, without any real runner-up, been the hardest. And I am burnt out on it. A burnt-out founder, it's a bad thing. I've learned that founder authority is weird. It's there even when you don't intend for it to be there. It makes it hard for new leaders to take Vox in their own, or just places, I guess, in their own directions. That trade-off is worth it, if you're still contributing essential direction, if you're, you're you're fully there for it, hopefully it's worth it. But over the past year, I've begun to feel like my arc as a builder and a founder is over for a while, and that it's time for me to just be a journalist again, and time for the leaders here and the ones to come to have the advantage that I did, that Melissa did, that Matt did, that our founding team did, the opportunity to build new things without having to ask anyone's permission. And they will. 
I, I can't say this clearly enough. The people here are amazing and creative and moral. I know some of what they're going to do, like the new show we've come to HBO, and it's amazing. There's a lot more I don't know, and that's even more exciting. There's something really beautiful as a founder about getting to watch something grow beyond you. I will be a reader and a listener and watcher and fan of Vox forever. I think the work of explanatory journalism is so important and so needed, and, and I hope you will be too. But I want to talk a bit here about this show. I started it, I think it was five years ago. I, I should have checked that. <laughs> and I really didn't know what it would become. From Vox.com and Panoply, this is The Ezra Klein Show. I am, as you might have guessed, Ezra Klein. And this is a program where I'm going to do longish interviews with people who I think are really interesting, really smart, really have something to say. And I, I had this idea that maybe 10,000 people would listen to these conversations, and that would be great, and they'd be really fun for me to do, and I'd learn a lot from them. And now hundreds of thousands of people listen to each and every show. These 90-minute, deep, weird conversations. It is wild to me what it has become, what it has meant to people. It's such a rebuttal to anyone who says there isn't an audience, a big audience for uncertainty, for exploration, for generosity. And at the same time, this show, it's changed me in pretty deep ways. It's changed me as a person and as a journalist. It's changed me in ways that will shape everything I do from here. And so I want to talk about some of those here. Something I, I realized over time, particularly in letters that, that I got sent from you all, was that this show was operating at a different level than my past work. When I write a piece, the message is the message. I am trying to tell you something and make sure you hear it. I'm trying to persuade you of something, and my goal is your agreement. But with this show, to, to borrow a bit from Marshall McLuhan here, the medium is the message. It's clear to me now that the way the conversations take place, as much as any individual idea or argument within them, is what drives the show, is what people take from the show. So in this elegiac episode, I wanted to pull out some of the ways the show has changed how I do my work and live my life and have my conversation, some of those values level things. And if you don't want to hear a lot of navel gazing about the show and what I've learned from it, I completely get and respect that. And this is a wonderful time to close the podcast and fire up today, explained or the weeds. It is this is really your moment and no hard feelings. But but let me start here, if you haven't left, with the obvious. Do the reading. A few years ago, I was asked to give a college commencement. It, it, it didn't end up happening because there was a labor dispute and I, I didn't want to cross the picket line. But, but this idea was going to be the whole speech. Do the reading. A lot of us are taught. I think I was taught. I mean, culturally, not literally that a teacher says it, although sometimes they actually do, that you want to get by without doing the reading, that you can read the summary or you skim and you, re you read the conclusion, and then you skim or you can fake it or you get just enough of it to sound like you read it. We're given these strategies for getting by without doing the reading, for faking it more effectively. And so something that I really learned as I became a professional, you would just be amazed at how few people in life are actually doing the reading. All the way up the chain of success and prestige, how many people are just pretending to know what they're talking about by relying on summaries of summaries or the received opinions of their peers or just their sheer capacity to bullshit. If there is any single secret to the show, it is that we do the reading. I, I'd done a book tour. It now feels like forever ago, but it wasn't actually that long ago. And I can't tell you how few 
interviewers had actually read my book and how different it was when they had. And I hear this from every author I know. I am lucky on the show to have amazing colleagues. Jeff Geld, who makes it an actual audio product and this year has had to do so under real tough circumstances. And Rajya Karma, who works with me on researching every episode. And man, that, that, guy, that guy does the reading. But something I've learned is that I still have to do it myself too. Because the point isn't the argument or information in the book. This is what changed for me. I came to realize the point is what happens in the time you spend engaging and wrestling with a book or, or the movie or the art or the music or, or whatever it is. It's that interaction between you and the object that matters, you and the information. That's where something happens that creates something new, that gives you your own perspective on it. You can't do that in a summary. It, it, you just, it doesn't, it doesn't hold the space for you. I didn't have language for this for a long time until, ironically, I read Nick Carr's book, The Shallows, in order to have him on the show. And I say ironically because his book had been out for 10 years. And, and I hadn't read it, but I had read about it, and I thought I knew what it was about, and I had a strong opinion on it. It's about how the internet makes you dumber. And well, I use the internet and I don't think I'm dumb. So I hated that book I hadn't read. And, and, and I had like a whole developed idea about why it was wrong and why it's good to get all this constant informational input and to surf the waves of, you know, the informational ocean. And then literally 10 years later for the show, I did the reading myself. And it is an extraordinary piece of work that gave me a language and framework for something I knew but didn't know, and then gave me language and framework for a lot of things I needed to know but didn't. Carr's book is really about how we process information, about how we are an actor in that process, and how the different modes of processing information, the different ways we experience that information really matter for what happens next. And so he talks about this idea of, of deep reading that's come to be something I really chase in my, my own life, even though it's often hard to achieve. There's been this tension in our view of reading between reading as this practical activity that's about essentially about mining a text for information that's useful to you in, in some way and reading as more of just a an exercise in contemplation, an opening up of your your mind to new ideas and even new experiences. And I think, you know, I, I think over time as a society and as a culture, we've come much to look much more at reading as this practical way of deriving information. And once you see it like that, then you start to, you think, well, the more efficient I can be at this, the better. And so, so in the past, there were attempts to, you know, spread speed reading so you can go a lot, lot faster. In these days, it, as you say, you know, oh, there are summaries or I can get the gist of it by Googling something. Um, and so in a way, we, we've become more and more focused on this practical view of reading, which, which is all about productivity and efficiency. In more and more, we lose, lose sight or at least lose the sense of the importance of reading as a kind of act of contemplation where your whole mind is is engaged and i would i would go further that i don't think that's just about reading i think there's also a tension in our view of the mind um that's really come to the fore particularly with personal computers and with the internet and I think there's the Silicon Valley view, which is that the mind is essentially a kind of computer and the more information you can input into it as quickly as possible, then the smarter we'll be and output will output more and more information and so forth. And to me, that's misreading of the mind itself, that there are much of the, the 
much of human intelligence, uh, of the highest forms of human intelligence are not about productivity and are not about information processing. They're about getting into this more contemplative state. So I think this, this, this tension in the view of reading kind of suggests this bigger tension in how we think about the best use of the human mind. Obviously, it's hard to to do the reading. It takes time and, and energy and space, and it's hard with kids and jobs. And, and, and I'm very lucky to have a, a job where I can actually make that part of my work. But it's something I've, I've come to really value in my life. And it's e- easy even in this job not to do it. So it's definitely a way doing the show has changed kind of every day for me. Um, lesson two here. Listening is hard. I did a show with Chris Anderson, the founder of TED, a while back, and something he said really stuck with me. For an idea to spread, for it it to move from one mind to another, there has to be an openness in the receiving mind. And, you know, when you think about it, we've we've evolved with this wonderful ability to be skeptical. It's an incredibly important ability. Uh, You walk around in the world and you're constantly getting input from signals from other people. People will say things. You'll have advertisements thrown at you. You have to be skeptical. If you responded positively to every incoming signal, you would very soon, you know, have no money and no control of your life at all. And so it's incredibly important to be skeptical, but to actually learn something, you have to be open. And the decision as to whether that steel door of skepticism slams down or opens up is therefore of huge consequence. What's happening in the current environment where these little weaponized text messages that we send each other on Twitter and Facebook and so forth, coupled with with, um, a partisan media environment offline and um, probably lots of other things. But we are tribalizing each other. We are simplifying the question about skepticism into a very simple one. Is this person on my side? It's becoming easier and easier to predict from knowing one thing about someone, possibly even just how they look, what they believe about a bunch of other things. And if we think, no, that's not me, then the steel door slams down. And um, no matter how, no matter what the person says, probably nothing will be learned or communicated. And that is an absolute crying tragedy. And, you know, civilizational threatening, if that were to continue, that is humans throwing away their single biggest superpower, the single biggest miracle that has allowed us to get to where we are, which is this sharing of of knowledge we are throwing away because we are losing trust in each other. So how you get around that is incredibly important. I think about that a lot. Listening is hard. It's hard while doing the show because so much else competes for attention. What's my next question going to be? Was that answer clear that the guest just gave? When is lunch? I'm often hungry when I do the show. But but that's just level one. That's the attention necessary to listen. And that's not easy, by the way. If, I mean, if you all listen to podcasts the way I do, the podcast tends to compete with walking the dog, commuting, doing the dishes. So just bringing the attention necessary to listen, like that's a project in and of itself in a distracting world. But level two, I've come to believe, is the true struggle. And, and one that we're not taught to think about very well, one that doesn't get talked about that well. Level two is being willing to actually hear what is said, being open enough to be changed by it. It's easy on on some level if it's someone talking who you like and agree with, then, then all your defenses are down. You've already let them in. And sometimes we're way too credulous in that circumstance. 
I talk a lot about how hard persuasion is, but but the flip is that we are often too open to being persuaded by people we already like and agree with. So we'll believe anything. Politics right now is an object lesson in the dangers of choosing to blindly trust the words of the wrong people. But but I want to talk here about this middle space. What about when we are listening to someone we haven't chosen to trust? Maybe even someone we mistrust. How do you set yourself up so you're open to hearing what they say? And I'm not going to sit here and tell you I have all the answers on this, or even that I always do it. I'm not always open to being changed. And I am definitely not saying to, to not approach things critically. But I've come to think for myself as a conversationalist and as a host and as a person that that's actually the, the really hard work here. Talking is not always easy, but but I think easier. It's listening that's hard. Before I, I started the show, I, I asked Kara Swisher uh, for advice on, on how to interview because she's a great interviewer. And she gave me this great piece of advice. She told me, however you act in a conversation is how the other person is going to act back to you. And I initially thought about that in a performative way. Like if I'm formal and stiff, they'll be formal and stiff. Or if I'm antagonistic, they're going to be antagonistic. But I've come over time to think of it on this other level. If they feel like you are listening to them, they will listen to you. If they don't, they won't. During conversations for, for the podcast, and I guess also in life, I, I can literally now feel sometimes when that happens, when when somebody makes a change from like, this is one of a hundred interviews they're doing, to they realize I actually read their book and thought about it and I'm listening to what they say and I'm here and I'm present with them and have like given them that respect and then they open up. And they're willing to hear and be be present with me to move off of autopilot. It really happens. But it's hard. It's not something by any means that I always achieve. Plenty of conversations never get there. Uh, but it, it's something I've learned to strive for more explicitly now and to pay more attention to. Uh, I wish I had learned that earlier in my life, to be honest. This is maybe a bit of a random thought, actually. But, but there's this book I've been reading. It's called The Dazzle of Day. Then there's no real other way to put this. It's Quaker sci-fi. But at the beginning, it describes the way Quakers discuss issues in their meetings, and it describes it as not back and forth. You know, I'm arguing one point and you're arguing the counterpoint, but circling around. I like that. And it, it's something I've come to, to value and seek out more, not treating issues as back and forth or pro and con, but just trying to circle around, be exploratory till the territory is fully mapped. Yezra Klanjo will be back after a short break. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel... It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Number three, the way you approach an argument is what you'll get out of it. This is maybe an add-on to the last point. It's definitely similar, but but I'm going to give it its own space even so. I, I used to think about the arguments I heard as right or wrong, good or bad. I think that was a product of thinking through arguments by writing about them. Better writers than me don't seem to suffer from this problem. As an example, I've always really admired the way ta Coates can write from a place of uncertainty. His uncertainty, the things he doesn't know, are able to exist in the writing. I often find in my writing, even when I'm trying to do that, that it, the way I think in the process collapses my arguments down into a single point, that 
all these things I was holding in tension and maybe was believing a bit of a bunch of them, it, it, it pushes me towards one final conclusion. It's like in the end, the question becomes, did I like this or hate it? Am I pro or con? Who do I think is right? And that's even truer when you get into social media, where just so much collapses down into pure units of position taking. I used to love this quote from Joan Didion. A lot of writers like this quote. It's something like, I write to find out what I believe, or I write to find out what I think. But something I've come to, to, to worry about is maybe that it's a little bit more causal than that that writing changes what I believe, it changes what I think, and that I'm, of course, going to be my own easiest audience. And so the, the, the act of writing is an act of shaping my thinking, not just discovering what was there, but also pruning out other things that, that, that were there and a little weaker, but, you know, maybe were valuable. And look, it, it's not that I, I didn't understand intellectually before that arguments can be 70% wrong and 30% right or, or, or vice versa. But I will say that the work of this podcast helped me build that idea into a practice. I often bring on people who I think are directionally wrong in their arguments, but since my promise to you is that these conversations are worth your time, and since my intention as a host is to help everyone on the show present their arguments in the strongest possible light, during prep, I'm still looking for places in their argument that I find value, even if it's only value that is critical. And it's really been striking to notice how different it is to read something I disagree with when I'm trying to find value in it rather than when I'm trying to take it apart or as we used to say in the blogosphere, <laughs> fisk it. Now, I want to be clear about something. This is not an argument against criticism or against reading things critically. Oftentimes, that is how you find the value. You, you, you put in an argument you don't agree with in conversation with the arguments you do agree with and you see what happens. Nothing is gained by being credulous or turning your mental faculties off. But there is a difference. There is a difference between an argument that you're trying to win, even just in your own head, and an argument that you're trying to learn from, or at least there is for me. I'm going to give an example here so it's not all just up in the clouds. If you'd asked me two years ago what I thought of the discourse around the word neoliberalism, I would have totally dismissed it. I, I thought, and as you'll see, I still think to some degree the word is thrown around imprecisely as an all-purpose slur. I've mentioned before the story that I was once commissioned by the Washington Monthly when I was younger to interview Charlie Peters about neoliberalism because they felt I represented this generation of young, unfair critics of the neoliberals. And, and then a few years later, in a period in which I had moved left, if anything, I found myself constantly accused of being a neoliberal, like the icon of neoliberalism. And so I found this whole conversation annoying and sort of in bad faith. At some point, I thought about doing a piece where I went through the five or six or seven implied definitions of neoliberal that I routinely saw thrown around, many of which contradicted each other as a way of getting at what was frustrating here. It, it's been conversations on this show that turned me around on this. I don't believe I was totally wrong in my previous view, but, but in focusing on the worst of the arguments or just trying to decide if I was pro or con the capital D discourse, I was missing some real value in these critiques. In particular, I've come to believe pretty strongly in the argument made by people like Wendy Brown, who talk about neoliberalism as a form of public reason, as a way we measure value in ourselves and in each other. Uh, but I want to use a quote here, not from Brown, but from Marilyn Robinson, because I think she articulates the underlying cultural change so beautifully. That brings me, I think, to my favorite single line from that that book, which uh, you write at one point, it's, I, I believe, if I'm not misremembering, in an essay about education and higher education, I miss civilization and I want it back. What in civilization have, have we lost? What do you want back? 
Well, for example, you know, because I'm old, you know, I can remember being told that education was valuable in its own right, that it was a gift to anyone to be educated, that it was, uh, you know, that something very beautiful had gone on among the languages and the sciences. And, uh, you know, to bring yourself abreast of it and, and, and know your moment and know your culture and so on was a tremendous privilege. I mean, I went to an extremely minor little high school, public high school in a tiny lumber town in Idaho. And I was taught Latin, you know, and we read Shakespeare, all this sort of thing. It was, you know, somebody looking at us now would say, what in the world do these kids need with Shakespeare? There's a this kind of, uh, what's the word I want? Utilitarianism that has entered into other people's thinking about your children. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it's somebody looking, looking at you from the outside is saying, well, that's not going to help her run a lumber company, you know, that might be arguable. But in any case, it's, it is again, that determinist thinking. I take this child, I plug it into, as I imagine, that economic need and anything else that the child might wish for is expendable or anything, any aspiration that parents might have, those are expendable. And this is a very crude utilitarianism that is in, that is new in this culture at the time, at the very moment that we spend all of our time saying, this is the richest country in the world. If we're so rich, why do we move toward impoverishing so many things? I just can't imagine. Look, there is still a lot of this discourse that I dislike. I, I hear a lot of lazy dismissals of politicians who had to deal with working congressional realities and institutional constraints as just, oh, neoliberals. I think there are really unhelpful efforts to collapse thinkers as different as Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama into a single continuum of policy thinking, which tends to, in my view at least, obscure way more than it illuminates. But I also think there's something profound to the idea that a veneration of not just markets, but the way markets reason and what markets end up valuing slipped the boundaries of economics and became the ideological water we swim in, a, a way of judging ourselves and measuring ourselves and, and, and standing into this void that was left maybe by religion and, and stronger forms of public morality or even stronger forms of straightforward ideology. At the same time, there are important policy ideas in the toolkit that now gets called neoliberalism. Markets are, are, are powerful and useful things. And there are a lot of places where they're needed even more than we have them, like housing. So, so I'm in this funny place now of both really liking the arguments made by, by many of the modern neoliberals. And it's an interesting trend in all this that there's now a, a world of people who call themselves neoliberals as a response to this discourse when there wasn't 10 years ago. And at the same time, also thinking the most fundamental critique of neoliberal thinking is correct. And that's obviously not just true for neoliberalism. It's true for, for a lot of arguments, like trying to hold these things in tension is often really valuable. Sometimes, you know, X is right or it's wrong, but sometimes X and not X are both right and wrong. Look, maybe this seems obvious to you. In a way, when I put it down on paper, it reads obvious to me on the page. But I will say the show has helped me practice it, not just profess it, in a way that other mediums I've worked in haven't. Which brings me, I guess, to my last point. Lesson four, 
mediums change us. Uh, I talked earlier about the idea of the medium being the message. One thing that has been a lesson on this show is how much people's messages change when they change mediums. I've had a number of episodes where I invited someone who'd been you know, like a vicious critic of me on Twitter, someone I thought was really unkind and unfair in the read of my arguments, or even just someone I really disagreed with, where there was no personal issue, but just we were in really different places. And I would invite them onto the show, and then I can't get them to actually make those arguments here with me. Like the whole, the whole conversation I'm prepared for can't happen. When, when people are in person and talking to each other, we've got decades of social training to kick in to calm conflict, to find common ground. Very few of us actually enjoy in-person conflict. People are usually nice and open-minded in person. And I, I think people sometimes take the wrong lesson from this. You, you then get this idea that our true selves are who we are at our most conciliatory or open-minded when we're talking to each other, when we're coaching Little League, not when we're tweeting or watching cable news or gossiping with a friend or voting. And I don't think that's right. Uh, I've covered politicians for long enough to know that the reasonable person you spoke with last week may not be that reasonable when they're next on Fox News or when it comes time to take the key vote. Look at those House Republicans, including Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy who signed onto that lawsuit asking the Supreme Court to overturn the election results. As wild as that was, as much of a betrayal of this country as I think that was, I promise you that many of them would sound totally reasonable if you talk to them about it in private. They tell you they're just signaling solidarity or they just want some vague irregularities investigated and it's so important that everybody has confidence in our elections. And of course, I would say it is what we do, not what we say that, that ultimately matters. But also, I've stopped believing that it is helpful to think of these as true and false selves, as there being a real person you can get to at the core. I think it's actually a big problem in journalism. We constantly think that, you know, something somebody said in a gaffe or on a hot mic moment, if like it came in privately, like that's the real them and the public them or the other thems are somehow artifice. We're just different in different contexts at different times. And what we ultimately do is really shaped by the context we're in when we have to make that final choice. So the lesson for me here is pretty different. It's to remember that our behavior, our, our, our very selves are shaped, profoundly shaped by the mediums on which we communicate and the context in which we act. This idea, it's really at the core of my book, why we're polarized. You may have heard of it. <laughs> People are, are different in different contexts. If you're on Twitter a lot, you will become more like Twitter. I have felt that happen to me. I've seen it happen to my friends. If you're in a zero-sum political system, you will begin to act in zero-sum ways. If you are sitting down with another person to talk over a meal, you will try and be a version of yourself that can have a nice conversation over a meal. And this isn't just true for how we communicate or act. It's also true for what we believe. History is thick with societies where the average person believed things we now consider abhorrent or acted in ways that now look unbelievably cruel or just irresponsible. And if you've listened to some of the show's coverage of climate or animal suffering issues, you know I believe that's true of, of our society right now, too. Something that the moral philosopher Peter Singer told me sticks in my head. What is it that leads somebody to take a moral intuition seriously? And what is it that allows them to just, even though they hold it, to not listen to what it is telling them? I think a lot of it is is who your peers are and, and the views of what your community is doing. Um, I guess that at the time, even after you read my book and accepted the arguments, uh, but were still eating hamburger, that part of this was that this was what all of your friends and other people that you knew were doing, and it was kind of hard to break from that. I think each hum humans really are 
social animal and we do tend to follow what others do and take our lead from other people. If you don't like how people are acting at scale, look at the system, social, technological, political that surround them. If you want to change politics at scale, you need to do more than change out the players. You need to change the systems that shape the way those players act. And if you want to change yourself, look closely at the systems you're part of, the mediums you spend your time on, the social circles and norms that you exist in or abide by, and really just try to ask what they bring out in you and what they make it uncomfortable to express or do or even think. This show changed me. It was, for me, a really great medium, and I'm grateful for it. And I guess it wouldn't be right to end then without asking or answering what is always a final question here. What are three books that have influenced me that I would recommend to the audience? I'll begin here uh, with Melanie Joy's Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. If you listen, actually, it just came up two seconds ago, you know that I think the cruelty we inflict on animals is just a signal horror of our age. And it is all the more so because we, we know it's wrong, because we are under no illusions that animals don't feel pain. And yet so many of us participate to greater or lesser degrees in a system of really just animal torture that is unnecessary, but it is staggering in its cruelty. And, and it, it's so bad. There are laws that make it illegal to tape what happens inside of it. Because if people saw it, the fear is that they, 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 the cognitive conflict would be so great, it would begin to crumble. Joy's book is a really sympathetic and humane exploration of that cognitive dissonance. It, it came from me at a time when I needed that. And a really interesting look at how we deal with it. And the way she explores that question, it's not just around animals, but what she offers is a model for understanding how dominant ideologies disguise and then defend themselves, leading us to act in ways that are really in conflict with our own values. Joe is also a guest on the show. That episode, which is called The Green Pill, is still one of my favorites. Here, here's a little bit of it. I'd like you to talk a little bit about why it is important and it hadn't been done to name carnism. Why, why was it important to give the eating that we all just think of as eating a different name. You know, because if we don't name it, we can't see it. We can't talk about it. You know, imagine trying to argue for affirmative action if nobody had named racism, you know, or some of the other initiatives that we are pushing for to bring about positive social change. If we don't name carnism, then eating animals is seen as an ideologically neutral behavior, as just a given, as, as just the way things are. We tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system because vegetarianism and veganism had been named while carnism had not been named. But eating animals does result from a belief system. I mean, whenever a choice is or a behavior is not a necessity, then it's a choice and choices always stem from belief. So the only reason that we learn to eat pigs but not dogs, for example, is because we do follow this belief system of, of carnism. For my second book, I'm going to cheat a bit and name N.K. Jemisin's The Inheritance Trilogy. Her, her Broken Earth trilogy gets more acclaim and it won more awards. And I, I wouldn't disagree that on some level it is better. But I loved The Inheritance Trilogy. I enjoyed it more. It's a little, it's not light, but maybe a little lighter. And I reread it more often. And also just fewer people know it. So, so I'm going to choose that here. And I just still love the episode with Jemison on world building. It actually fits this episode really well because it's all about how to build a mental model of the world you live in, how to make that model explicit to yourself, how to figure out what actually is happening in your model. 
and then begin to learn how to manipulate it. So you can try to imagine how society can and must and will change. It seemed to me that in order to world build, Mm -hmm. that what you had done is first created a very sophisticated model of how our world actually works. Mm. When people build the climate models that, that spit out what might happen if you change, you know, the up to four degrees or you change how quickly oceans acidify, mm-hmm. what they're creating is a model of how our world works that mm-hmm. they then can begin to change parameters up. And, yep. and what it seems to me that you've actually done is create a much more sophisticated and visible to yourself model than most people have of how you believe our world works. So -hmm. that every time I offered an alteration, Mm -hmm. that you understood what it did in your model much more Mm -hmm. quickly than I understood what it did in my model. Hmm. Well, I I mean, my suspicion is that if you were the kind of nerd that I was and sat around (laughs) reading about how do deserts do, um, you know, how do mountains, um, this is this is the kind of thing that excites me. That is, you know, I actually, you know, go grab a book on orogeny, which is the science of mountain formation. Actually, I just mangled it into a magic term. But you know, one of the most exciting things that I can do is like go study a volcano, and I follow uh, a lot of Earth science accounts on Twitter and things like that. Um, but for me, that is the most interesting aspect of world building is, yes, having that model in my head, tweaking aspects of that model and using the comparison to our world to figure out how it might work in this world. I believe it's kind of a necessity for science fiction writers to understand humanity um, and our planet and our our physical world as well as our sociological world. Um, That is the basis of science fiction. Um, It's also one of the bases of fantasy. It's just, you know, less acknowledged. But it's one of the bases of science fiction that, you know, you're, you're focusing on how does science impact human life and how does it impact the stories and the people that, that we're going to be trying to tell. It's just that I don't confine it to the physical sciences. I'm interested in, you know, sociology, anthropology, all of these things, too. And finally, lastly, Working by Studs Terkel. I don't quite know how to do Terkel justice in a description, but he is, in my view, the absolute best interviewer America ever produced. I keep every single one of his books near my desk. I think he's the only prolific author where I have the whole library. But but Working is my favorite of the collection. It's just this kaleidoscope of voices and perspectives on the experience of work in mid-century America. And Turkle finds so much poetry and pain and wisdom in every single one of them. And he almost never steps into the frame himself. I I really want to be clear that I'm not in naming Turkle claiming to be in his lineage, as will be obvious as soon as you open his books. Uh, I I don't do what he does. I can't do what he does. But I am in awe of him, and and, and more people should read him. So that's it. If you want to reach me, the the email address has changed. I I don't have my Vox Media email anymore. So you can email EzraKleinShow at gmail.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at gmail.com. Please keep following the speed. Great things are going to happen here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Vox Media for absolutely everything, and to all of you for letting me do this work. Onward. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. 
Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.